and welcome to Judgment Calls. I'm David Levy, director of the Bolch Judicial Institute at Duke Law School. My guest today is Margaret Marshall, who was Chief Justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court from 1999 to 2010. She is one of our most distinguished judges and lawyers and has had a remarkable career in life. She grew up during some of the worst days of apartheid in South Africa and came to the United States as a graduate student in the late 1960s. She eventually practiced law in Boston, became the general counsel to Harvard University, and then was appointed as an associate justice and then the first woman chief justice of Massachusetts. Her groundbreaking 2003 opinion in Goodridge versus Department of Public Health recognized a right of same-sex couples to marry in Massachusetts. The Goodridge opinion rests on the Massachusetts Constitution and came fully 12 years before the U.S. Supreme Court, following her lead, came to a similar conclusion under the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. What an honor to have you here. Justice Marshall, welcome to Judgment Calls. Thank you, David. It's both a pleasure and an honor to be here. Well, it's our honor. Let's start by uh, talking a little bit about your growing up in South Africa. You became a leading student opponent of apartheid. And can you speak about how that happened and how your views on apartheid evolved? I came from a family. I grew up in a small um, village in South Africa. My family had lived in South Africa for many generations, and my family was white, of course, and conservative. And by conservative, I don't mean pro-apartheid, just conservative. My father went to work in the morning, and my mother was a stay-at-home mother, and I never thought that I would become involved at all in politics or anti-apartheid politics. Then... In 1962, I came to the United States as a high school exchange student and spent a year living in Wilmington, Delaware. I really do think that that was the moment that my life changed. President Kennedy was in the White House. The Civil Rights Movement uh, was going full force. I had an opportunity to listen to Dr. Martin Luther King, and I was shaken, really, by the robust way that Americans talked about and considered and argued about their government. And I think by the time I returned to South Africa, really the shades had been lifted off my eyes. I went to university, and of course South Africa at that time, the mid-1960s, was really at one of its worst moments. Uh, All of the major political opposition parties had been outlawed, President Mandela and his cohorts had been sent to prison for life. We were not going to see them again. And so little by little, I became involved in student politics. Many of the student leaders who were involved in politics were either arrested, many of them were arrested, or were what we called, the government called banned, which is to say they had to remain at home, they couldn't attend university or travel in the country or see visitors, Uh, and I think that had a big impact on me. Um, And then at the end of the 1960s, I was given a scholarship, and I wanted, of course, to go to Oxford, which is where all of the men that I knew went. But at that time, 
the Oxford colleges to which I wanted to go, Balliol and University College and New College, didn't admit women. And I think because I had been in the United States, I simply said I wanted to come to Harvard. It seemed like a great university to me. So that's what happened. You came to Harvard, and you initially were going to study art history, I think. That's correct. And then eventually uh, you decided that was maybe not your life's work, and you um, found the law. I did, and and it really was finding the law. Um, And from the very first day, I mean, it seems very strange to say this, but from the first day at law school, I knew that I had found my, uh, my calling, my profession. Uh, when you when you graduated from uh, law school, I, I guess I, I gather during law school you'd had an experience of being in court, um, um, maybe in uh, in the summer or something of that sort. Right. And I, um, I I think this was in Boston, and uh, you, I know you have a, a a bit of a story about what how the judges responded to you. Well, at that time in Boston. I think it would be fair to say that many of the judges and the court personnel were Irish. Um, I, as you can hear, speak in an accent which Americans assume to be English. Of course, (laughs) it's not. And somehow I felt that arguing to a jury or trying to persuade a judge uh, in a criminal context was not going to be the area where I would be most successful. And, of course, I didn't know any lawyers. I didn't know any judges. And I had to find my way. Um, There was no American lawyer. There was no uh, information about what lawyers actually did. And I ended up practicing law at a large commercial law firm. And to my great surprise, I loved it. I loved the clash of legal ideas. Um, And so I was very happy. and you see a lot of life, I think, in a, in a law firm, you, the things that you wouldn't normally encounter in your own life. Uh, that is correct. And the other important thing is that I always advise young lawyers to get involved in bar association activities for a couple of reasons. It gets you out of the tall towers and down onto the street. But some of the great bar associations, of which the Boston Bar Association, which goes back to John Adams, You meet people in your field. In my case, it was what we used to call the law of ideas, which became sort of intellectual property. But we did pro bono work. We had an opportunity to meet judges off the bench. Um, I met the few women uh, judges. There were very few women judges. There was a great deal of mentoring. And so bar associations, I think, are, first of all, a wonderful contribution to the legal profession. But if you are a stranger... It's a very good home to try to find. Were there other women at the firm, or were you one of the very few um, female partners there? I was one of the very few female partners at Chotall and Stewart, my law firm. There were two women who, um, one of them is now in her 90s, the other in her late 80s, who had joined the firm but on the express understanding that they could never become partners. Over time, as the pressure built to admit women as equity partners, both of them became partners, and they were among, I think they must have been maybe the second and third or third and fourth women partners at any major law firm in Massachusetts. So I was there as history was beginning to turn. 
you were part of that wave of remarkable women who came into the law and, and succeeded mightily because there are many people of your many women of your generation who were the first right. but did it so well and and, and some, went on to in greatness. some ways we had that benefit that we that collectively the women were pushing to break down the barriers and um, I was just fortunate that I was a little older and so yes I ended up as the first over and over again if not the first the second I was sort of first and second so your your specialty in intellectual property and your stature in a in a important law firm uh, prepared you to become the general counsel of, of Harvard University which is an immense <laughs> university uh, it's not just a university it's it's a medical center, huge hospitals and all sorts of things. Uh, how did that happen? Well, I was doing well at my law firm and I was engaged in patents and copyrights and sort of intellectual act, kinds, the intellectual side of the law. And there was a new president at Harvard. And I frankly had no particular interest in becoming the general counsel of Harvard. I hadn't really thought about it. I didn't really know what the scope of responsibilities would be. But I was invited to meet the new president, and that seemed like a very good thing for me to do if I was engaged in that kind of work. And so I met the new president, President Neil Rudenstein, and I was so impressed with his attitude, his take, what he wanted to do with the university. And so to my great surprise, I ended up several months later as a general counsel. It was a difficult decision for me because I loved my work. And I knew that my role in the law firm was important to both the younger women but also the younger men. And so leaving that was quite a challenge for me. One of, one of the aspects of university leadership that I found so interesting when I was dean particularly, I think, at a private institution, is the relationship with, with the government. And because these massive private institutions are, are funded in large part by um, the federal government, and there's a, a web of regulation that, that, that surrounds the university, but maintaining its private quality is so important. And, um, and I think also, that's something that judges deal with all the time is this difference between when it is the state and when it is the private person. And a lot of our laws are written in that way. And I'm wondering whether you had that same, same sense. I certainly did. And in my case, it was for a particular personal reason. All of the universities in South Africa were essentially fully government-funded. So I had come from a country that didn't draw a distinction between private fund, private institutions and public universities. And in South Africa in the late 1950s, the South African apartheid government had passed legislation saying that the universities, the white major universities, could no longer admit any black students. There had been a small number, but very important number of black students. Uh, and the government passed legislation to say, no, you can't do that anymore. And those universities had passed a, a statement defining what the then important uh, faculty and trustees thought defined academic freedom. It made no difference who funded you, but the, and the essential requirements of academic freedom 
was the right of the university to determine who would teach, who they would teach, what they would teach, and how they would teach it. While I was the general counsel at Harvard, there were a series of cases and statutes that were enacted that really essentially called into question those fundamental rights of academic freedom. Let me give you but one example. Many universities had a mandatory retirement for faculty at age 70. Now, that had nothing to do with competence. I mean, they're wonderful people who have, you know, who were brilliant and continue way after the age of 70. But it was a way for making room for new scholars because universities don't have an endless pot of money, and so if you stay until you're 75 or 80 or 85 or 90, it simply means a slot is taken. The Americans with disabilities, uh, not disabilities, um, anti-age discrimination legislation, while I was the general counsel of Harvard, that became applicable to institutions of higher learning. What we've seen at universities, both public and private, is it's very difficult for young scholars to get tenured positions, particularly where they are in disciplines where there are not very many slots in any event, philosophy or whatever it is, and particularly in the science areas where senior faculty have big laboratories, our younger generation of brilliant scholars are simply, are simply being squeezed out. So the university had decided you can teach until you're 70, then we want to make room for younger scholars. And here was the government telling us... You can't do it. You can't do it. And, 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 and treating it as a civil rights matter, which makes it even more complex, I suppose. I, I see this as like a continuing issue that kind of weaves its way through the, the law in a way. Is How much discretion do the courts permit to entities that have the responsibility for a certain segment of life, whether it's a school board that's trying right. to uh, integrate its, its schools or it's a university trying to manage its faculty or run great labs, you know, sh how much deference should we show to these institutions, many of which work incredibly well and are the sort of the thing that maybe makes the United States as, as great as it is, like our private universities, which are amazing. Um, well, that's something maybe we can come back to. If I were writing your biography and I were presenting the the, the appointment as as chief, as justice, and then as chief justice, as kind of the pinnacle, the, or the the way the the thing that was meant to be, <laughs> I would try to draw in uh, your experience of apartheid, your experience in the law firm and your experience at Harvard and say that these three streams had prepared you uh, to be the wonderful justice that you were. Would that be accurate? I had never in my wildest imaginations thought that I would be a judge, never. Um, and Harvard is a great international institution. <clears throat> Excuse me. It, um, it's a huge employer. It owns real, real estate. It has very valuable assets. Uh, both at Harvard and in other cities in the United States and around the world. Its faculty come from around the world. Out the faculty go to the, the rest of the world. The students come around the world. It is a very complex organization. And the legal issues presented really have very little to do with the academic part of the institution, although we've just touched on an important one. 
but they have to do with very fundamental things like workers' compensation or um, one, one of my favorite was the business school, which is across the river from the Charles River. Well, it turned out that when the business school was first getting electrified, it was simply provided as electricity by the Cambridge Electric Company. When the business school wanted to vastly increase its electrical capacity because of computers and other reasons, it suddenly discovered it was in Boston. <laughs> well, let me put it this way. The Boston Edison discovered that the university had been paying, paying Cambridge. I mean, who would have thought? <laughs> who would have thought that that would have been the legal issue that lands on the desk of the general counsel? Well, um, how did your appointment to the court come about? The appointment to the court came about in this way. I was telephoned or contacted by the uh, legal counsel to Governor William Weld. Now, Governor Weld had been a law clerk on the Supreme Judicial Court. He cared about the court a great deal. It is also the case that in the court's then 302 years, a little more, there had been only one woman on the court. So the pressure to appoint a woman uh, was high. These are political appointments. And I had a call from the legal counsel asking me if I would be interested in being considered. Now, I should say immediately that if you are asked in those circumstances, do not assume that this is a guarantee that you will go on to the court. It was a very difficult decision for me because I loved my work at Harvard. But I had a deep reverence for the Supreme Judicial Court for reasons that relate back to South Africa. For some reason, when I was in South Africa, there were two judicial decisions of which I was aware. I was not a lawyer in South Africa. My parents weren't lawyers. I had nothing to do with the law. But there were two decisions that the students who were involved in anti-apartheid activities, of which they, we were aware. The first was, not surprisingly, Brown against Board of Education. South African government, as I've mentioned, was segregating, double segregating, triple segregating, making it impossible for black and white students uh, to be schooled or educated in any way. And here was this great case with wonderful statements, wonderful statements about why segregation is unequal, inherently unequal. But the second case was a case that was issued by a court called the Supreme Judicial Court. What did I know? I thought they were the same court. I didn't know there was a federal court and a Massachusetts court. And that case decided in 1783 was a case decided under the new, then very new Massachusetts Constitution, which predates the federal Constitution. The Massachusetts Constitution starts or started at the time with the words, all men are created equal. And a case was brought by a slave in Massachusetts. The procedures leading up to how the case came before the court are not relevant. And in 1783, the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts ruled that slavery was inconsistent with the new constitution. And that was another case of which we knew, I knew, and so the Supreme Judicial Court had always been a revered institution for me. Uh, yes, I had appeared in the court, but that wasn't the reason. It was because of this great history of 
one of the first cases, I mean, I would say the first, but there are English friends who dispute that, but one of the first cases that as a, as a matter of law, as a matter of equality, as a matter of legal principle, said slavery is inconsistent with the objective of equality and dignity for all. Uh, that's, uh, that was an amazing opinion for, for its time. I think lo- the, your English friends dispute it because Lord Mansfield yes, had an opinion <laughs> right around that time. <laughs> uh, I say that that did not declare slavery inconsistent. So you did become a justice on this I did. Uh, really quite remarkable court that's had amazing justices uh, it in, has. Its, in its history, including Oliver Wendell Holmes and, and, uh, and others. And Benjamin Curtis is one of the greats. I mean, he was the dissenter in the Dred Scott decision, right. and he came from the Supreme Judicial Court. And and you you were first an associate justice, if that's the right term, and then you um, were appointed to be chief justice. And uh, let's talk about that role, uh, if you don't mind, because what is it to to be chief on that court as opposed to a justice? That that's uh, quite a quite an addition to your responsibilities, I think. It is. The Chief Justice in Massachusetts is responsible for the entire judicial branch. That's not always the case. Sometimes the Chief Justice is simply responsible for the Supreme Court in some states, right. not in Massachusetts. So the budget, um, how we provide for the over 100 languages of people who appear in Massachusetts courts each year, um, security, hiring, filing, um, all of that um, is ultimately the responsible of the chief justice, and that is a very challenging position. Let's. Uh, why don't we? T- we'll talk about your management um, responsibilities and what you tried to do there. But let's start with your um, jurisprudential life, and of course, the Goodridge opinion uh, looms very large. Um, really, a remarkable opinion at, at the time. Um, what what reflections do you have on on the opinion, the process, and and the reaction? The process was different in Massachusetts from some of the other states. First of all, Massachusetts didn't have what we call any DOMA legislation, Defense of Marriage Act legislation. That makes a difference because there had been multiple cases involving marriage. Uh, that is decided under the common law. And that is when the court can be its most robust. There's no inhibition. And Massachusetts had decided many cases relating to marriage. Uh, For example, if a couple, heterosexual couple, had lived together for a long time and then separated, did did one of the parties, not as economically stable as the second, have any right to to the more wealthy Um, partner in the relationship. We had already enacted, uh, through an opinion of the Supreme Judicial Court, that same-sex couples could adopt, legally adopt children. So there were a variety of ways in which the court um, had spoken about marriage. A critical one, earlier one, was that when women married men, they didn't lose all of their property rights. In many ways, that had a far bigger economic impact uh, than, than same-sex marriage did. 
Um, second, um, the United States Supreme Court, although the case was decided under the Massachusetts Constitution, one is cognizant of what is going on in the rest of society. And um, in a great opinion by Justice Kennedy, the United States Supreme Court had essentially said, in essence, um, homosexual conduct is no longer a, a criminal offense or illegal. So clearly, the movement was moving forward. And the last one, I think, was in Vermont, where the plaintiffs had brought a claim to same-sex couples to marry. The resolution in Vermont had been civil unions. And I think um, same-sex couples had discovered that civil unions really don't protect you in the same way. You know, your, your partner with whom you have a civil union gets taken to the emergency room. You want to go into the room. The nurse or the doctor doesn't know what a civil union person is. Or um, there are children in the civil union, and one of the partners wants to move to a state far away and wants to take the child. You know, what right does the person who's being left behind have? There were just a variety of ways where marriage is such a settled institution, everybody knows what it means to be married. Um, so I think Massachusetts, in a way, um, had an advantage. There's a terribly important aspect to this as well, which we can talk a little bit about, which is Massachusetts judges are appointed, uh, nominated by the governor, subject to the advice and consent of a statewide electoral body, and then serve a single lengthy term. They serve, in essence, um, for life subject to mandatory retirement. I raise that because judges in Massachusetts do not look over their shoulders, worried about are they going to be reappointed or reelected. Uh, Goodrich was decided, followed by New York, and it went the other way. New Jersey, it went the other way. And then Iowa, five judges on the Iowa Supreme Court, decided unanimously that same-sex marriage should be allowed in Iowa under the Iowa Constitution, and there was a re-election of three of its justices within a year, and they were all voted out because of a massive campaign, national campaign funded nationally of people who opposed a same-sex marriage. And you, so you didn't get that kind of reaction because you weren't subject to reappointment or re-election or a retention election or anything of that sort? Well, we were heavily criticized, and I think that's perfectly fine. Yes. You know, judges are the government, and so if the United States Supreme Court uh, issues a decision, you can criticize it. Everybody can criticize it. Uh, the governor criticized it, but the governor never suggested that um, he would not obey the order. That's another thing in the United States that we so take for granted, and it's relatively recent, that when courts issue orders, we simply obey them. I mean, think about Bush against Gore, which was one of the closest, most bitterly fought pieces of litigation. The day after the court decided, was the court's decision criticized? Of course it was criticized, but nobody suggested that Governor Bush wouldn't take the oath of office and be sworn in as a president. I, I don't think anybody did. And there were no troops out on the street. I mean, that is a privilege. 
um, that we have in the United States, and I think it's because I come from another country that I feel so passionately about what we have to protect here, what is so important here, that we, you grow up in this free country and you don't really realize how free it is until sometimes you go to another country. But for immigrants, waves of immigrants, we know, we know. Well, and you make you make such a good point. I know Justice Souter has has talked about this um, in some of his writings that the Nixon Papers case was so important because uh, President Nixon obeyed the obeyed the order. Was, you may want to describe. There was an order for the president to hand over papers that he clearly thought were private. Were private. That's right. Whereas in the 19th century, we have some, you know, fairly extraordinary examples, whether it's Andrew Jackson or Abraham Lincoln, uh, of saying, well, that's the court's opinion. I have a different opinion. Exactly. And, and not, not acceding to the courts. It, it, took, it took more than 100 years, really, to Absolutely. instantiate this. Yeah, it's really very important. Well, you, probably you... you um, you took some criticism, I suppose. Oh, I uh, took massive criticism. <laughs> <laughs> I read the opinion uh, recently, and one thing—it was four to three. Um, yes. And so you had you had some dissents, but all the opinions are written very respectfully and in a quite a calm tone. I I, I noticed that, and I m- imagine that that helps somewhat in um, in the public discussion that then followed. That it would at least be. Uh, respectful. One one of my responsibilities, I felt as a chief justice, uh, was to make sure that there were no ad hominem attacks among the judges on each other. I never tried to persuade somebody, except in confluence and by legal argument, um, to join the majority. Uh, if the judge justice felt that they were in dissent, that was fine. But my intention. Um, not entirely accomplished in Goodrich, but my intention was that the the justices in support of the majority opinion would all write together, the justices writing in dissent would all write together so that the litigants, the bar, the public could see without having to get mired um, in details. And one of the privileges of especially the lead dissent that was written by Justice Martha Sossman, who tragically died early of um, breast cancer, she and I worked very hard to strip the opinions of certainly any, as I say, sort of accusations that we were homophobic or religious or whatever it was, but also to slip out of the opinion the wonderful dances that justices can get into about rules of interpretation and which standard of review and uh, all kinds of things that the public were really not interested. We just assumed that we have an educated bar, they will understand what we're talking about. And so both her opinion and my opinion were specifically drafted so that people could understand why did she have that point of view and why did I have that point of view. Um, of course, I couldn't stop the additional dissents and a concurrence, but it was fine. I yeah. mean, the tone was fine throughout. So um, the... You had many other opinions. The the role of a of a of a court like that in, in a state like Massachusetts, there are going to be an enormous number of common law cases and statutory cases. Are there others that uh, perhaps didn't uh, gain maybe the same degree of national and international attention 
that uh, stand out to you or that you're particularly proud of that you were you wrote the opinion? I, I, when you have a court as old as Massachusetts, I think the two things, and you see this in the United States jurisprudence as well, the two things that I think have changed, one is technology. Now, technology has an impact in all kinds of ways. Um, in the old days, for example, in an employee-employee case, if the employee uh, had a desk and a locked door on the desk, generally speaking, courts said the employer couldn't come in and look at the secret files. I mean, the, not the secret files, the files that the employee had kept in his locked or her locked door in the office. I mean, that's gone out of the window. It's absolutely gone out of the window. So the court has to wrestle not only about what can an employer do, but can the employer, for example, put a GPS on your car to see what time you arrive and what time you leave or where you go after work? Uh, seems obvious, not so obvious. One area was what was happening in the area of health and particularly fertility. So we had a series of cases that involved um, really serious disputes where you had frozen sperm or frozen embryos. I can give you one example. A happily married couple have some fertility challenges. Uh, the husband's sperm is are frozen by a, a fertility clinic. The only interest of the fertility clinic was, can we destroy the sperm after a certain number of years? The couple then divorce. The husband moves to California. The woman doesn't remarry, and she heads up in age, and she's getting towards 40 or 41, and she would like another child. So she goes to the fertility clinic and says, I would like to have the sperm of my former husband. Well, you can see the yeah. ramifications. It raises some issues. It raises some issues. <laughs> yes. Or another one, um, again, heterosexual, married couple, um, they're going to have a child. The child is being delivered by a surrogate woman. Everybody's on board. The couple came into the court to say, could you order the hospital to list the wife as the mother. Why did they want that? For all kinds of insurance reasons. If the child was born with a major defect, what were you going to do? Who was going to become the decision maker? From the hospital's point of view, the mother is the woman who's delivering the baby. Very interesting. When do you say one's the mother and the other one's the mother for what purposes? You know, you're just the delivery <laughs> nurse. I mean, you can't think that through. So lots of questions like that. I would say privacy-related questions. Um, what happens when an irate police officer pulls somebody over and starts screaming at the passenger for, I don't know, driving too fast or whatever it was, and the passenger surreptitiously turns on his iPhone and starts to record Massachusetts has a statute that said you cannot record another person without their permission. Passenger goes to the police off to the police station to say, "Do you see how your police officer is treating citizens?" The next thing he knows, 
<laughs> he's getting indicted for violating the statute. Yeah, It doesn't exactly turn out. Yeah, it's <laughs> not exactly I mean, what they so were all expecting. all of these are what I would generally call changing technology. So let's uh, stay with that theme. So it, the changing technology is... Uh, comes into the courtroom in cases, but putting on your other hat as the chief, the technology, uh, the advances in technology offer some avenue for providing better access to justice, which is one of the really big challenges that the Correct. state courts face. There are just so many people who, um, either because they can't afford it or because they don't want it, appear in court without a lawyer and need a lot of help. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what your what your thoughts are on the what we call the justice gap in this country. Certainly, technology helps, um, but there's an upside and a downside. It helps because one can have standard forms that are available online. Um, you can have uh, people giving advice remotely. If, if we we passed a, a court rule that said if you advise somebody as a lawyer representing the person for one part of a case, you didn't necessarily have to take on every other legal problem that they had. That's an old rule that if you're the lawyer, you're the lawyer, you're, you're the lawyer, and you can't get out of the case. Um, uh, it's very helpful with translations, for example. As you can imagine, the delays when you try to find uh, the one person who's going to provide the translations uh, for some some language uh, which is not widely spoken in the United States. Uh, during my tenure, um, um, we opened up and we put on the web um, proceedings before the Supreme Judicial Court. I feel very strongly, very strongly indeed, that there should be cameras in the courtroom. Um, I think there are debates, if it's a, there's a jury trial or something like that, think of the O.J. Simpson case, but I really do disagree with the United States Supreme Court that that does not um, have cameras in the courtroom. Now, I know that there are issues of security. I really do, and I don't, uh, I don't minimize those. On the other hand, our justices are now out on the road speaking publicly. Their speeches are on the Internet. I mean, it's very hard to draw that distinction any longer. This is part of um, civic education, perhaps, too, which is oh, something absolutely. that judges are very concerned about, is that people really don't understand our system of government any longer. Well, Justice O'Connor, after she retired from the bench in particular, Sandra Day O'Connor, was very actively involved in that and used a lot of technology um, to help people understand how the branches worked, how they interacted. There's really wonderful um, work going on in that area, and technology has made a big difference. This conversation that you and I are having, I don't know to whom, <laughs> how many people will listen to it, but hopefully a few, <laughs> uh, a few and they will learn something about what goes in, you know, what does the Chief Justice do, what are some of the issues? Um, I should say that the chief justices of the 50 states um, and the territories, that's the Virgin Islands, Guam, the Mali Island Islands, the Mariana Islands, uh, Puerto Rico, we get together twice a year. And we become chief justices in very different ways, but we all face the same challenges of running court systems. And they're big challenges. 
And I so admire the National Center for State Courts that brings all of those people together and has them share their expertise. So we're not all reinventing the wheel all of the time. There's just so many issues. The, the, the regulation of the bar, which the state Supreme Courts are very involved in, and touches on what you just mentioned, the health of the bar. We have this fees and fines issue. So many of the Absolutely. state courts have to fund themselves, and they do this through fees and fines, which are crippling for many Americans. Um, and it's not the right way to fund an, an entity. Uh, and then we've talked about the access to justice, and then you've got all these security issues, and it's very complex. It's very complex. And when you talk about states regulating the bar, which we do and we guard it jealously, the bar is now global. So, for example, when Australia wanted to negotiate the right of lawyers trained and admitted in Australia to appear and to practice law uh, in certain states in the United States, they weren't thinking so much about uh, being trial lawyers or in trial. They were thinking about being corporate lawyers, doing deals, who's, who's advising whom on what issue where. Well, Australia went to negotiate with the State Department. Of course, they don't think they have to negotiate with 56 different chief justices. It became quite a tussle. Uh, will Massachusetts allow Australian lawyers to do deals in Massachusetts, physically located in Massachusetts, in other words, practicing law in Massachusetts? I don't know how that's been resolved, but it was an ongoing issue when I was the chief. So I'd like to uh, end these podcasts by asking um, the judge if they have a judicial hero or a role model that meant a great deal to them um, and that, that maybe influenced you as you did your work. It's a fairly difficult question because in some respects um, I, I came as such an outsider that I didn't grow up knowing about the heroes. I think... Um, I have two, and in part because of the role that they played that made such a difference to me. The one may seem obvious, and I'll explain why it isn't, is John Marshall, who what he was doing was establishing the ground rules for a brand new system of government. There hadn't ever been a constitutional democracy before 1783 in any nationwide country. The more immediate person, of course, I didn't know John Marshall, the more immediate person that I did know fairly well was Arthur Chaskelson, who was the first chief justice of the new democratic constitutional system in South Africa in the 1990s. And both of them um, had to really lay the groundwork for what they hoped would be an institution that would survive for hundreds of years. When I became Chief Justice, what I tried to do was to make sure that the judicial branch in Massachusetts was at least as good as when I inherited it, maybe a little better, but that nothing we did essentially sort of tore it apart or put it back 10 or 15 or 20 years. I will say that in my chambers, I had 
portraits of the two marshals, John Marshall and Thurgood Marshall, and I found them both inspirational. And you're a marshal too. (laughs) (laughs) And I just and I just used to say these are my ancestors, (laughs) which they were in some respects. Well, that's really a marvelous answer. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. It's always fun. It's always interesting. I can't help but reflect that how lucky we are as a country that you were you came here although the reasons were not uh hopeful at the time the outcome i think for us has been just uh, stupendous so thank you for your service to our courts to our country to the people of massachusetts and thank you for joining me today on judgment calls Thank you, David. And I will say that the United States is a great country. I would never think of living anywhere else. Um, I love this country, and it has given me so much I don't think I can ever repay it. So thank you. Well, you're well on your way to repaying it, and that's a wonderful statement. I'm David Levy. Thanks for listening. Judgment Calls is produced by the Bolch Judicial Institute at Duke University. Find us online at judicialstudies.duke.edu.